Happiness is an inside job. At Happy Healthy You, Connie Bowman helps us find our way with inspiring conversations and healthy ideas for living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. Happy Healthy You. And now, here's Connie. The realization of a happy, healthy, and joyful life begins with the recognition that you are a citizen of two worlds. Clearly, you are a citizen of the ever-changing material world of animal, vegetable, and mineral matter. In this familiar environment, the body is your vehicle for action, and your mind is your most powerful instrument for evaluating circumstances and motivating your body into action. For every action, your mind-body-sense complex takes a consequence results. You are also a citizen of the distinctly non-material yet profoundly real world of consciousness. Within this subtle world exists an intuitive library of knowledge that unerringly identifies which of your possible actions will lead you to realize health, happiness, and freedom from fear, and which will lead to physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual dis-ease. Hi, everybody. I'm Connie Bowman from Happy Healthy You, the podcast. And if you've been listening for the past three years, right, or more, I don't even know anymore. You know this podcast is all about living a happy, healthy, joyful life in mind, body, and spirit. And so today, that reading was from Chapter 1 of The Heart and Science of Yoga, Empowering Self-Care Program for a Happy, Healthy, Joyful Life. This is Leonard Perlmutter we're talking to today, and I'm so excited to talk about this book. They sent it to me, and I read it, and it's this beautiful, thick, comprehensive book of yoga and meditation and everything I love, and I can't wait to talk to him, but first let me give him a little introduction. So Leonard Perlmutter is one of the Western world's leading pioneers in the introduction of meditation. Having founded the American Meditation Institute, AMI, in Avril Park, New York in 1996, AMI's courses are now approved and accredited by the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association. Leonard also serves as the author and editor of Transformation, the journal of meditation as mind-body medicine. However, today he's here to talk about his new book, The Heart and Science of Yoga, the American Meditation Institute's Empowering Self-Care Program for a Happy, Healthy, Joyful Life. How can I not love that title, right? Which is an encyclopedic and it is Guide to Meditation and the Yoga Science that Lies Behind It. It has been praised by such popular medical luminaries as Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Oz, Larry Dossie, and is highly regarded as the most accessible source about adapting the eight steps of yoga science, including meditation, into our busy, stress-filled lives, so you can reach a whole new level of peace, contentment, well-being, and achievement. Leonard, thank you so much for joining me today to come on Happy Healthy You. I love your title. It works perfectly. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Connie. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and, and I loved this book, and I will continue to love it because I think it's something that all of us can come back to over and over again. Um, it's comprehensive. It is encyclopedic, as, as uh, your intro claimed. But I loved that it's, uh, it's good for the layperson, the person who might be new to yoga and meditation, as well as for um, my friends who are yoga teachers. I, I, th I feel like we can use a lot of these uh, chapters in our teaching. 
and we'll get into that a little bit. So maybe you can talk about why we need this book, especially in the Western world, because it does seem to be geared toward those of us in the West more than ever. Well, as we all know, these are very stressful times. Uh, and it seems that uh, we don't really have a mechanism for dealing with the stress in a very coherent and successful way. And yet, if we look back in history, uh, there was an ancient body of wisdom called yoga science that provided the human race a template for making conscious, discriminating choices that led to happiness, health, and security. Mm. And when I began to discover this ancient science and began to study and practice it, I just felt better. I felt better physically. I felt better mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And that's what motivated me to write this book out of my own personal experience. It's what motivated me to uh, found the American Meditation Institute and to, in fact, be here today to share with you, Connie, and, and your listenership uh, the good news about the fact that within us we have this body of knowledge that we can rely on in every single relationship mm. to to bring us the, the health, the happiness, and the security that we deeply desire. Mm -hmm. And I love this about yoga, too. I'm, I'm, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> when I first learned about yoga, I was in college in a theater class. And we, mm -hmm. we practiced every day before we uh, started class just to practice and get uh, some relaxation going in the body so that we could, you know, find those emotions that we were trying to work on in theater and and it was perfect sure. and um i i sort of agree that like if it if it ain't broke don't fix it <laughs> yoga right. the science of yoga is such a profound and it and we know it works and now we've got the science behind it because when you come to the west we have to that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So maybe talk about your journey a little bit. I, I'm so fascinated by your journey with your guru, Rama. And um, he was the one who, uh, maybe you can talk about a little bit more, proved um, that, that there actually was a physical, uh, physiological response to yoga and meditation, right? He slowed down his blood pressure and everything. Maybe you can talk about him a little bit yeah, in your journey. Uh, when he came to uh, the United States uh, in in the early mid-70s, he uh, went to the Menninger Institute in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, they wired him all up uh, with all these electrodes, and uh, uh, they took different readings, and on, on the palm of, of his hand, uh, they were able to read out two different temperatures one inch apart, and he was able to uh, slow down his heart rate uh, so that it wasn't even negligible. And he was a little disappointed in, in the scientific reaction, uh, thinking that, well, maybe this was just magic from the East. And the, and the only reason that uh, he, he came to be able to demonstrate this was to show the power that the conscious mind has to regulate and affect the autonomic nervous system. And so it's, it's, it's amazing. We, we hear about uh, this mind-body connection, but we don't really uh, fully grasp and embrace it enough. And what I'd like to do is I, I, I would like to do a, a little bit of a yoga science experiment with you, Connie, and, and yeah. with your listeners, okay. just to 
to underscore the profound nature of this mind-body connection. Okay. Okay? So what I'd like to ask you and, and, and your listeners to do is to raise your right hand over your head. But before you do that, before you raise your right hand over your head, I want to let you know that I want you to do that without entertaining a thought. So without entertaining a thought, go ahead and lift your right hand over your head. (laughs) I can't do it. I can't. I did it. I I was like, uh, uh, my hand's trying to go up, but there's thoughts. There's thoughts. That's right. There's thoughts. And so so this is very powerful. Mm -hmm. The mind moves first and the body follows. The body in the movements that the body takes is a reflection of action that takes place prior in the subtle world. And so what yoga science does, this whole science was formulated uh, to go from the gross aspect of life to the subtle, to the subtler, to the subtlest, and understand what's going on deep within the mind and begin through the science of yoga to ameliorate and eliminate inner conflict. You see, inner conflict is the mother of all problems. If, if our thoughts and our words and our actions in the external world turn out to be in conflict with our own inner wisdom, then that inner conflict, that inner conflict is going to project outer conflict. And the first uh, example of outer conflict that uh, that the mind experiences is in the body. And so at a certain point, I realize, oh my gosh, I have a pain in my back. Oh my gosh, I have high blood pressure. But why do those things happen? You see, they happen as a reflection of conflict that's taking place in in the subtle world of the mind. So yoga as a science is the oldest form of mind-body medicine. And in order to experience the happiness and the health and the security that we deeply desire, yoga science provides humanity with a philosophical and a scientific template for seeking and discovering and employing the truth. And to begin the practice of yoga science, every individual must first be willing to use his or her own mind-body-sense complex as a personal laboratory in which to undertake scientific experiments. And then, in the midst of every relationship, we're being asked to employ the bridge of yoga in order to discover, verify, and employ that truth. So maybe you can talk about the bridge of yoga. I love this because I feel like it simplifies to a great extent um, a, a lot of the teachings that I've struggled to grasp and I just came out of a yoga nidra uh, intensive this past five days and there was this map of meditation that I'm still like oh my gosh I I don't know how long it's going to take me to get it but I'm determined to get it but I love the bridge of yoga so maybe you can describe that to um, our listeners okay so first of all let's talk about yoga yoga means union and the bridge of yoga is seen as a metaphoric, philosophical, and scientific bridge in our lives that inspires us and instructs us to connect our outer action 
And of course, outer actions can be thoughts, they can be words, they can be deeds. It inspires us to connect our outer actions with our own inner intuitive wisdom. And so in each and every yoga science experiment, the same hypothesis is set forth. When we use the bridge of yoga to receive the truth of inner wisdom and employ that truth in thought, word, and deed, we feel better. We feel better physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And at the same time, the corollary of this hypothesis is also tested. When we do not use the bridge of yoga and our actions actually conflict with our inner wisdom, the consequence is not happiness, health, and security. Instead, we experience increasing amounts of stress, dis-ease, and pain. And and if we don't heed the lesson of pain at a low decibel level, Mm -hmm. the decibel level just gets louder and louder and louder. And something that was stress and dis-ease last month can morph into a disease. Hmm. Do you have any any examples in your own life from your early days that maybe uh, was an impetus for your um, studying yoga more deeply that um, that you could describe for us? I have a thousand of them, <laughs> but but yeah, um, I I love that you talk about that. This if well, we, if we don't pay you, attention, that's right. We're in trouble. Uh, <laughs> now, when I was a, a young kid. Uh, I was heavy. I was raised in a, in a stereotypical uh, Jewish family where food was very important. And uh, I wanted to please mom. And it made mom very happy, so to speak, uh, that her, uh, her child uh, ate in a healthy way. And uh, she equated it, as her mother did, and, and her mother's mother, uh, with quantity. And what that meant for me was I, I was pretty much in pain uh, a great deal of the time. I had uh, terrible di- uh, digestion and uh, uh, lots of cramps. And uh, it was interesting at, at a young age uh, in, in my early teens, uh, uh, my family sent me to a, a gastroenterologist. And uh, I remember uh, uh, going there and thinking to myself, finally, somebody's going to ask me what I eat. (laughs) And of course, at that time, I only ate one meal a day. Uh, But it started about 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning, and it went till about 8 or 9 o'clock at night. I was eating continuously, and of course, I was doing that out of stress and anxiety. Uh, We all, uh, as young people, uh, deal with emotional issues, just trying to grow up and find our place in the world. So I was overweight and uh, was in pain. Uh, but when I got to the, the gastroenterologist, uh, he never he never asked uh, for uh, a sample of uh, of what my diet was. It never even came up. Now, when I'm with uh, students and and they have uh, issues uh, relating to food, I immediately ask them for a five day food journal uh, so that we can see specifically what is it that we're feeding this uh, this machine. And so uh, when I went away to school, I started making uh, decisions on my own. I lost weight. And I also lost the pain in my gut. So there was was a difference uh, uh, when I was away from the triggers of the family and the paradigm of, of what 
what type of food and how much food to eat under the aegis of, of parents, and that being on my own, uh, I learned that uh, I can change my experience if I change my perception. And uh, that led me to uh, studying uh, different scriptures. I, I really did not know much about yoga. Uh, this, you know, this was back in the early 60s, and uh, I, I really did not know much about yoga whatsoever. Maybe a little bit about the physical aspects of it, but certainly nothing about the science. And so I began studying uh, different uh, religious philosophies. Uh, I studied uh, Judaism, uh, my birth religion, and, and Christianity, and, and Islam, and, and Buddhism, and Hinduism, uh, and uh, Native American traditions. And then I, and then I uh, came upon yoga science, and I realized from my study that the essential kernel of truth contained in yoga science is actually the basis of every religion. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thank you and for saying and that. And it's all based on the bridge of yoga. Mm. Outer action, beautiful. inner wisdom. Thank you for saying that. I love that. In in this most recent uh, training that I was at, it actually came up because the training was, I won't mention what it was, but the training was um, advertised to be a secular practice. And someone said, well, it comes from the Hindu uh, tradition. How can you legitimately say that? And it started a great conversation that um, ne- I think needs to be brought out into the open. But so many people are afraid in this Western world to even go there because. But you know, <laughs> it's all interwoven as far as I'm concerned, and every spiritual practice has the science within it. I agree. I'm so. Yes. It's like, oh, thank you for saying that. So very yeah. cool. So, so you started paying attention to the subtler uh, messages that were coming through, would you say? That's right. Okay. And I began uh, uh, basing my outer actions intuitively on, on what I felt in my gut. And, and I came to realize that that intuitive wisdom was regularly, reliably reflected by my conscience. And then in the study of yoga science, I, I, I stumble upon this unbelievable uh, knowledge that, that tells me that the conscience is the only function of the mind that can discriminate, determine, judge, and decide. The other functions of the mind, such as the ego, the ego is sort of like one of these color commentators on, on, on uh, television. You know, you turn on the news at night and, and you see these people. They're often wrong, but they're never in doubt. And, and that's sort of the ego. Uh, the ego, uh, uh, I, I perceive the ego as this function of the mind that, that carries a chainsaw around all the time. And no matter what we experience, the ego cuts it in half. And so one half, uh, it represents uh, what is pleasant and what the ego says is good. And the other half uh, represents what the ego says is unpleasant or bad. And the ego is always trying to encourage us to go after and experience what it says is pleasant and good. And because it reprises a memory of pleasure. And the other half of the unpleasant and what the ego defines as bad, we are encouraged to distance ourselves from it. But we already know from our own personal experience that that which is pleasant isn't always good for us. Mm. And that which is unpleasant isn't always bad for us. 
And so if we, if we become attached to our likes and dislikes, only going after what we like and avoiding what we don't like, that mental inflexibility, of course, creates physical inflexibility, which invites dis-ease. And so the key to successful living is to coordinate the functions of the mind. You see, the ego and the senses and the unconscious mind, they only have a limited perspective. Now, a lot of times that limited perspective is correct. You need a healthy ego, for example, uh, to, uh, to carry on an interview like this, sure. to uh, drive an automobile. So we don't want to get rid of the ego. It has a very good, positive perspective on some things. And same with the senses. You know, well, we have a body, we have senses, life is to be enjoyed. It's not about deprivation. But gee, if I had a jelly donut, and that was, you know, very nice, and I appreciated it, am I going to have a second jelly donut? Now, the ego might say yes. The senses might say yes. The unconscious mind, which brings forward a memory of pleasure, might say yes. But the conscience, which really has a 360-degree panoramic view, would know that even though it was our right to have the first jelly donut to experience what a jelly donut is, the second jelly donut is not to be eaten. And if I can live my life coordinating these different functions of the mind in service to this wisdom reflected by our conscience, the promise is that I'm going to experience happiness, health, and security to the fullest extent possible. If I, if I disregard my inner wisdom, then I'll experience stress, dis-ease, burnout, and all the rest. Yeah, I love the way you explain it. And uh, I think it's page uh, 474. You have a really good diagram uh, toward the end of the book about uh, the bridge of yoga. And it, it's very helpful. It's super helpful So anybody who gets the book. So, so yeah, when we, when we find this union of, I, I say mind, body, and spirit, but in, there's so much more encompassed in this yoga science. There, you have the doshas and the gunas and the, <laughs> you know, there's a lot to learn. So, yeah. so don't be, how, how is the, what's the best way to work with this book in your experience? And maybe you can address those of us who are new to yoga and meditation, and then those of us who are teaching, that would be really helpful. Well, uh, the book is an outgrowth of my personal practice, which became the outline for my teaching. Okay. And so, so the book is the core curriculum for a six-week course that, that I offer. And so I suggest that people start at the very beginning and uh, uh, just proceed through at your own pace. Uh, from the very beginning, starting with the philosophy and an understanding of who we are, going into uh, uh, working with meditation and, and beginning the practice of meditation and working with a mantra, and uh, then understanding about the correlation between the breath and the mind and how by calming the breath and making it full and even diaphragmatically, how, how it enables the diaphragm to massage the uh, the vagus nerve 
that sends messages to the amygdala to turn down all of these hormones, these stress hormones of fight, flight, or freeze, and, and we'll, so that we'll feel better. Uh, and then the book uh, proceeds uh, into understanding the different functions of the mind that I briefly discussed, the, the senses and the, uh, and the ego and the unconscious mind and our conscience, which is known as the buddhi uh, in, uh, in yoga science and, and in Sanskrit. And, and learning how to coordinate the different functions of the mind. And then the book also has uh, Ayurveda, uh, which teaches us about our unique body, our doshas, uh, what, what uh, balance of space, air, fire, water, and earth comprises my body, and, and, and what does that mean in relationship to the food that I eat, and the time of day that I eat, and the season uh, uh, in which I eat. It's all interrelated, and it's just all marvelous. And then, of course, easy, gentle yoga. We think that easy, gentle yoga is a, is a physical activity. It's an exercise. But uh, on a very profound level, we're really talking about the mind because we just did a little experiment, and we found out that the body cannot move. The body cannot exercise without first entertaining a thought. And so, really, even easy, gentle yoga is a practice about the mind, first and foremost. Can and I then just the, the interject, Leonard, here, since we're here? A thought just came in, and I wanted to share it. Maybe you have some, um, some, something to add to this. I teach a yoga for uh, Parkinson's at, on um, one night a week. And I had joined my class. I had a young man who has early onset Alzheimer's. And I'm finding it, the exam, this example is profound for him because I, I found all that he can really handle are simple movements, um, lifting, for example, the right arm. And, and when I say lift your right arm, he ha- it takes him a while to, to find that thought. <laughs> to, yes. um, that is such a profound example of that. I mean, he really is in no mind almost. Yes, yes. Um, yes. So maybe um, you could go into some some suggestions for teaching uh, teaching everyone, but but maybe you have some suggestions for teaching someone who might be in that state. Of well, what comes to mind uh, is a, an experiment, a study that was done uh, maybe about twenty years ago with basketball players. Uh, uh, the, the study divided a basketball team in half. And in basketball, uh, there's something called a free throw, uh, uh, where you go to a foul line and, and you, uh, you try to shoot the ball uh, uh, into, the, into the basket, these free throws mm-hmm. at, from the foul line. And uh, for a period of time, a half of the team uh, practiced foul shooting every day. At the same time, the other half practiced foul shooting only mentally, mm. never even touched a uh, basketball, okay. and they just did it uh, uh, mentally. And by the end of the season, both uh, uh, portions of the uh, of the team uh, had uh, very similar uh, records of efficiency. And uh, even if you cannot do what somebody else can do physically for a variety of reasons. Yoga is about honoring limitations because every aspect of our yoga practice is about intention. And 
we know now through uh, uh, many studies, uh, Sarah Lazar uh, at, at Harvard uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, has substantiated it through, through her research that uh, not only does yoga uh, change the software of the mind, but don't you know that it even changes the hardware of the mind? This is the whole science uh, uh, of, of rechanneling um, uh, these, these areas of, of the brain that carry these messages. It's called neuroplasticity. We can, we can, uh, we can construct new highways through which information it travels through the brain. Uh, it's it's tremendously uh, 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 inspiring, and I think that your experience uh, uh, with whether it's uh, Parkinson's or uh, uh, any kind of uh, dementia uh, or Alzheimer's, uh, it's it's critically important to recognize what are the limitations of that particular individual and and honoring those limitations still can be extremely effective in in creating vibrant health. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Uh, One thing I do notice about that particular student is that he responds really uh, deeply to meditation. And he looks like he was a meditator maybe in the past. I just sense that he may have been Mm -hmm. because he, he goes so deeply into meditation. It's really beautiful. So maybe you could go into that a little bit. We all, we all know the benefits of meditation, but how does it actually work that meditation reduces and eliminates stress and burnout and illness? We are all so plagued with that in this culture. How does that work? You touched on it with Sarah Lazar's work, but maybe- well, you know, uh, the stress and the burnout that we experience has nothing to do with the relationship with certain objects and people. Okay, so it's it's not what we observe that brings the stress and the burnout. It's what we think about what we observe. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Right? It's this color commentary. It's, it's, it's all this mind speak that's going on. Um, The ego is constantly chattering. The uh, senses are constantly clamoring. The unconscious mind is constantly uh, uh, making suggestions to us. It's dizzying. And yet the uh, ego and the senses and the unconscious mind have no power to discriminate, determine, judge, and decide. But when we meditate, when we meditate, we're asked to give all of our mental energy to one object. We call it the mantra, a word or a series of words that contains the name of the divine reality. A word or a series of words that contains the name of the divine reality. And when we can give our complete one-pointed attention to the vibration of the syllables of the mantra. And every tradition has mantras. Three different things happen. First of all, we experience love. Second, fearlessness. And third, strength. So every time we sit to meditate for even 60 seconds and give, try to give our full one-pointed attention, and remember, everything is about intention, it's not about accomplishments. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about uh, scoring touchdowns and hitting home runs here. We're talking about this is my intention is to give my full conscious discriminating attention to this mantra. Every time we do that, I'm generating love and fearlessness and strength. Love and fearlessness and strength being stored in the unconscious mind. And I can use that in the midst of different relationships that need love. 
and fearlessness and strength. I love and, Yes, yes. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, when we meditate and we can, we can do that, we can focus on one thing, one object to the exclusion of everything else. We are creating the skill of one-pointed attention. Now, one-pointed attention is very interesting. It's the key to creativity and genius. And yet it flies in the face of, of this cultural teaching about multitasking. The culture is asking us to multitask. And don't you know it's impossible to multitask? So this is a reflection of certain concepts that we have in our unconscious mind that we all agree to that are patently false. So we're asked to multitask. When we, uh, when we uh, fill out a form uh, for a new job, they even ask us on, on those applications, can you multitask? And what do we write down? Oh, yes, I'm a very good multitasker. <laughs> but it's impossible for the brain to multitask. It's impossible for the mind to multitask. To provide us the delusion that we're multitasking, adrenaline has to surge through the whole system so that the mind goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between two objects. And the ego concludes, hey, I'm multitasking. No, you're not. You're wearing yourself out. And you're poisoning yourself with all this adrenaline so that the mind can go very quickly between two objects. And the, what's the consequence? Well, first of all, the immune system is depressed. And secondly, the mind becomes depressed. So the key to genius and creativity that we learn through meditation is, is monotasking giving our full one-pointed attention in meditation to the mantra. But now I'm, I'm, I'm training my mind to give only one thing, my attention. And because I do that, what I'm doing is I'm also creating detachment between stimulus and response. Because when I meditate, when I'm meditating, the mind happens to be habituated to stimulation. We're addicted to stimulation. That's why we have, what, a couple of thousand channels now on our cable TV. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an infinite number of channels uh, through the Internet. Mm -hmm. And so the mind gets bored listening to the mantra. And so what happens? A thought from the unconscious mind comes forward into the conscious mind. Hey, what's for dinner? Now, food, I, I like food very much, so maybe I'll think about food. <laughs> but I'm supposed to be meditating. If I, if I think about food, then I'm not meditating. What am I going to do with this competitive uh, thought? So what meditation helps us to do is to create a space, a detachment between stimulus of the thought that evokes food and my response to it. Okay? So in that space between stimulus and response, I now have freedom to redirect my attention to my conscience, which is my discriminative faculty, will tell me 24-7, hey, that thought that just came in to my awareness about food while I'm meditating, is that, am I supposed to give that attention right now? Or am I somehow to, to sacrifice it? And the conscience will tell me, oh no, meditation, you just give your attention to the mantra. So I'm taught to honor, witness, and sacrifice any competing thought, any competing image, any competing sound. You see, I'm training the mind, just like you train a puppy dog. And then I redirect my attention 
back to the mantra. And in that process, I've not only created one-pointed attention and detachment, but I've increased my discriminative faculty because I've been using my conscience. It becomes my go-to function of the mind because it's always reflecting wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind. Well, what's the superconscious portion of the mind? The superconscious portion of the mind lies beyond the conscious, lies beyond the unconscious. It's the same portion of the mind where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations. Same portion of the mind where Paul McCartney hears beautiful melodies. Hmm. Doesn't mean that I'm going to become a songwriter. Doesn't mean that you, Connie, are going to become a mathematician. But yeah, it does, that, that ain't going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but if you uh, but if you do use your conscience, yeah. all sorts of creative ideas mm-hmm. will tumble into your conscious mind that will directly and positively influence every single relationship mm-hmm. that you have. Just so in meditation, mm-hmm. meditation you you have you gain the skill and the tool of one pointed attention, detachment, creativity, and discrimination, and the and the final. Uh, tool that we develop in meditation is that we build the muscle of willpower to do what's to be done when it's to be done and not to do what's not to be done when it's not to be done. Beautiful. And all that's from a mantra. You have such a beautiful uh, chapter on mantras. And I think as a teacher, I will go back to it over and over again. But one thing you mentioned, I'd like to dive a little deeper into this, if you don't mind. And it's in your title. So you mentioned this uh, fearlessness, this love, this strength. And in your chapter on mantras, uh, you give examples of mantras from different uh, spiritual traditions uh, from the Christian tradition, Jesus, Yeshua, from the Hebrew, from the Islamic, from from Hindu, Soham, we're, we've we've heard of that often, from Buddhist. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the heart and the science uh, come together in this practice, um, especially of using the mantra in meditation and the importance of it? Well, the question, the way that you pose it, uh, presents the heart and the science as two different things. Okay. It's not. Oh, it's, good it's answer. It's one. It's no. one. Okay. Every everything is one, and, and that that is that is the take home message of yoga. There is only one reality in the in the ancient Hebrew tradition, the uh, which became. Which, which became the Christian tradition, which is the, the, uh, the essence of Christianity. It became Islam. It's the essence of Islam. Uh, the ancient Hebrew tradition uh, says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, O inner witness, the Lord, God, these concepts that we have for the supreme reality, is one. And that's the exact same message of uh, quantum physics today, right? Mm-hmm. Everything in the universe that we perceive through our brain and senses as separate is actually part of one holistic organism. And the heart and the science uh, of yoga, for example, is really one. We see two because of the limitation of our brain and our senses, and we have these concepts that skew our perception. Uh, the more that we do the experiment, our consciousness expands beyond old concepts 
that were not appropriate. And we can see that this is a science, this is a philosophy, this is thinking, speaking, and acting from my heart. And what does that mean? It means that we become prophets of love. That is our essential nature. Why would I want to damage my body? Why would I want to do injury to my body? Why would I want to do injury to my liver? Why would I want to do injury to my pancreas? So, you know, uh, I have stopped eating food that I like. And I now eat food that likes me. Oh, good. Does this food love my uh, liver? Then I'll then I'll eat it, and I I'll I'll uh, develop a love for it. And uh, does this food love my eyes? Yes, it does. Okay, even though I didn't care for the taste initially, I'm going to continue to eat it. And the more I eat it, the more that I recognize scientifically it's good for my eyes. I learn to love it, mm-hmm. and so that love and the science begin to meld. Mm-hmm. And there's that ahimsa where you wouldn't want to even harm a a blade of grass. That's right, because every relationship Mm -hmm. is with ourselves. You know, Jesus, speaking as the Christ says, love thy neighbor as thyself. And and we all think that's a really cool idea. But why, why, why does he say that, speaking as the Christ? He says it because on the highest level of consciousness, thy neighbor is thyself. Oh, yes, we have different bodies. Yes, we have different minds. Yes, we have different personalities. Yes, uh, uh, we have different habit patterns. But the body, the mind, the personality, and the habit patterns, we know they all change. But the essence that is within you, Connie, and it was, is within Leonard, is actually one. We share the same consciousness, you see. Mm, beautiful. And, and yeah. I, I love how in your acknowledgments you thank Jesus the Christ Albert Einstein, Paramahansa Yogananda, and even Elvis Presley. <laughs> yes, Elvis, Elvis is one of my most important gurus. Shakespeare, you have so many, not only uh, Rama, but you have many gurus. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So we could go on and on, Leonard. This is such a great book. Thank you so much for writing it and putting it out there for all of us so that we in the Western world, and really anywhere else, but especially in the Western world, can benefit from your long uh, lineage of knowledge and expertise. So w- maybe you could talk a little bit how people can learn more about your teaching, uh, where we can get the book, and um, anything else you want to say as we close out this podcast. Well, I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Connie. Uh, the book uh, can be purchased through uh, the website of the American Meditation Institute, and that website is American Meditation dot org americanmeditation.org uh, you can uh, find the book on amazon.com and as well as barnes and noble and all fine booksellers uh, american meditation institute has classes uh, many different types of classes uh, on meditation gentle yoga uh, the bhagavad gita the chakra system uh, yoga nidra uh, many of them are online streaming uh, we also have a, uh, an online video course that runs five and a half hours that uh, uh, has been produced to document the teaching that is contained in the Heart and Science of Yoga. That can be found at the AmericanMeditation.org website. I also do personal counseling. 
And I, I would just like, uh, before we close, I would like, Connie, just to leave everybody uh, with, with one point. And that is that every thought that comes into your awareness is only a suggestion of what to give your attention to. It's not an imperial command. Every thought is only a suggestion of what to give your attention to. It's not an imperial command. And the more that you build a bridge of yoga so that you can base your thoughts, words, and actions on your own inner wisdom, the more that there is a, a syncopation between outer action and inner wisdom, you'll be able to fulfill the purpose of your life without pain, misery, or bondage. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Again, the book is The Heart and Science of Yoga, the American Meditation Institute's empowering self-care program for a happy, healthy, joyful life. Thank you so much, Leonard. And namaste. My pleasure. Namaste. Namaste. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Happy, A Journey of Hope, Healing, and Waking Up is a small but powerful book about healing from one of life's greatest tragedies, the loss of a child. It's about love and sadness and being human. The nine lessons in Back to Happy are intended to be food for a broken but awakening soul. Healing from grief and loss is possible. Finding joy again is possible. Back to Happy, in paperback, Kindle and audiobook at Amazon.com. For more information, visit backtohappybook.com.